Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 119, Tut Today it's time for some family business. As the first decade of Akhenaten's rule draws to its close, we must catch up with Queen Nefertiti, her royal daughters, and come to grips with some burning questions that show up around this time. You see, Nefertiti wasn't the only wife of Pharaoh, she may have had a rival, and one of these women was responsible for the birth of the king's son. In this episode, we see the birth of a child named Tut Ankh Aten. Today's story was brought to you by Eric, Shannon and Rich, who became patrons of the podcast at the Hereditary Noble tier. Eric, Shannon, Rich, your generosity is greatly appreciated. Aten smiles upon you. May your own creative efforts grow strong, healthy and vibrant. To everyone listening, Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. The year was 1353 BCE, give or take. Regnal year 9, under the splendor of Nefer Keperu Rey, the lord who lives in Ma'at, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the son of Rey, Akhenaten, the one who is great in his lifetime. Pharaoh, life, prosperity, health, was in good spirits. His reign was established, his city was growing, his god was supreme, and his subjects were loyal. At home in the palace, in the heart of Arket Aten, the pharaoh was perhaps content, as were his family. We know more about Akhenaten's close relatives than almost any other new kingdom ruler. With the exception, perhaps, of Ramesses II, Akhenaten's reign has left an unparalleled amount of evidence for the pharaoh's children and wives. Thanks to artistic scenes, archaeological remains, and even a couple of mummies, we are in a great position to look at the family of this famous and curious ruler. So today, I want to ignore Akhenaten almost completely, and spend some time getting to know the most important people in the court. Nefertiti, her three eldest daughters, and the woman who became their rival. First up, let's talk about the king's wife. Not Nefertiti, the other wife. Nefertiti is probably one of the most famous queens in Egyptian history, but she wasn't the only woman to share Akhenaten's bed or bear the title of royal wife. In fact, there was at least one other woman who had a claim to Akhenaten's affections. She's not as well known, but she's an interesting figure nonetheless. Her name is Kia. Kia is a curious individual. We don't know where she came from exactly, but she shows up around year 6 of Akhenaten's reign, bearing the title, Greatly beloved wife of the king, the beautiful child of the living Aten, who shall be living forever and ever, Kia. When she appears in the pharaoh's new city, 
this wife seems to be high in the king's esteem, and for the next six years, she would be a prominent member of his family. Where did Kia come from? Well, it's not clear. Her title, Greatly Beloved Wife, is unique, specific to her. She also has the epithet Noble Lady, or Ta Shepset, which might indicate a foreign origin. For some scholars, there's a reasonable chance that Kia is one of those foreign princesses who came to Egypt as part of the diplomatic arrangements, brotherhoods and alliances, which formed between the great kingdoms. Personally, I'm not convinced by that hypothesis. The only evidence for it is a record from Thebes mentioning a, quote, noble lady of Matani. But we don't even know the date that that object was made. It could easily belong to one of the other foreign women who came to Egypt in this period. So in my view, it's still an open case. Kia's origins are uncertain on the current evidence. For a few years, monuments at Akhet Aten show this royal lady Kia alongside the pharaoh himself. In one scene, Akhenaten holds up a dead duck, presumably cooked, in front of the lady's face while the Aten shines above. In another scene, the pharaoh pours libations, purifying waters, over Kia's head. The scenes are lovely, and they give us a sense of the affection which may have existed between Akhenaten and his second wife. Kia's political role is unclear. The great lady is absent from the vast majority of Akhenaten's public monuments, the boundary stelae, great temples, and the palace reliefs. So she wasn't as prominent as Nefertiti. The king also does not reference her in proclamations, and until year six, she seems to have been a nobody. So as far as we can tell, Kia was, for the most part, a beloved consort rather than a political figure in her own right. However, this doesn't mean she wasn't important. Kia was clearly high in Akhenaten's esteem. Apart from her title, Greatly Beloved Wife, we also know that the pharaoh gave to her a special place, a kind of ceremonial palace or pleasure garden, just south of the main city. It was called the Maru Aten, or viewing place of the Aten, and it seems to have been a sort of garden slash pleasure palace. It was open to the sunlight and included wonderful amenities like a large pool, which was big enough for a boat to sail upon it. It also had gardens full of flowers and even a set of kennels for the royal dogs. The Maru Aten Pleasure Palace is a fascinating piece of Amana's archaeological record. We're going to come back to it in a future episode, but for now, it's enough to know that this pleasure palace or ceremonial garden was constructed for the enjoyment of Kia. She's the first one who appears in the reliefs, and although that would change later, it seems that, at least for the first few years that she lived in this city, Kia was one of the most esteemed women in Akhenaten's court. We're not certain if Kia gave Akhenaten any children, although she might have borne two daughters, who were younger children of the pharaoh, and would eventually go into obscurity. Apart from that, it's not certain. She's one of two candidates to be the mother of the boy named Tutankhaten, but we'll return to that question in a moment. Suffice it to say that Kia's presence at the royal court is totally ordinary. Most pharaohs had more than one wife. And even though there was always a principal wife, that is, the great royal wife, there were always plenty of other women around, sharing the pharaoh's bed and his affections. Kia is interesting because people are used to thinking of Akhenaten and Nefertiti as being a kind of exclusive power couple. 
But the truth is much more complicated. We're going to return to Kia in a future episode because her story is not yet finished. For now, it's enough to know that she was close in Akhenaten's affections and a prominent member of his court. For all this importance though, Kia definitely was secondary to the other woman in the royal harem. It's probably time that we caught up with Nefertiti, the great royal wife of Akhenaten. After so many episodes focusing on the pharaoh and his new city, it's time to catch up with the most powerful woman in Egypt. What has Nefertiti been up to for the past few years? Well, mostly, she's been having children. As the first decade of Akhenaten's rule came to its end, around 1352 BCE, Queen Nefertiti was in a position of absolute privilege. The Hemet Nesutweret, great royal wife, Nefer Neferu Aten, how beautiful is the Aten, Neferet Iti, the beautiful one comes forth. The queen was now in her mid to late twenties, and she had become a formidable presence in the royal court. Nefertiti, enduring of fame, is well worth our time. We know a surprising amount about Nefertiti, all things considered. Unlike many queens, she was at the forefront of Akhenaten's rule from the very beginning. Even when he was still Amunhotep IV, around year two, Nefertiti appears on monuments as the supreme wife of the king, the one who accompanied him in rituals and celebrations. As we saw in episodes 109 and 110, Nefertiti appeared suddenly at the side of the king, and when he erected his very first monuments to Aten at Karnak Temple, Nefertiti was there in art as the king's great wife. What had happened to her since then? Between Regnal Year 2 and Regnal Year 10, Nefertiti seems to have been busy with pregnancies. She gave birth to at least three daughters in this time, three princesses who became a central part of the artistic imagery which Akhenaten used in his monuments. When the king and queen make offerings to Aten, the princesses are there behind them. When Akhenaten and Nefertiti go riding in their chariots, the three daughters follow, riding their own carts while soldiers clear the way, and ladies-in-waiting follow obediently. In scene after scene, the three daughters of Nefertiti follow behind, assisting their parents in rituals, and generally partaking in the glory of the royal family who lives under Aten. At their head, the girl's mother, Nefertiti, is the living image of a supportive and doting wife. Obviously, you're probably familiar with the legendary Nefertiti bust, the painted sculpture with its blue crown now housed in Berlin. That image, well, it's more than a little bit famous, right? And it has become the standard image we think of when talking about Nefertiti. But there are other images of the queen, other pieces carved by royal sculptures, which give us glimpses at her face. My personal favourite piece of art about Nefertiti is one that is only half finished. It's a stone head with no crown or decoration. The reason I like this one is that, when it was abandoned, the piece was obviously undergoing drafting or review. Someone, perhaps the master sculptor, had taken a brush with black ink and made markings on the face where the artisan should make his next cuts. The result is a sort of plastic surgery template, an image of the queen when it was halfway completed. The reason this is so valuable is that it gives us a sense of which facial features were considered important. By marking the next steps to carve, 
the reviewer has inadvertently given us a sense of the blueprints, the standard features, which a portrait of the Queen should include. From this piece and a couple of other busts, we can have a look at Nefertiti's public image and see how she looked, or wanted to look, to her subjects. According to the various icons, Nefertiti had a slightly curved nose, which dipped inward a bit, just below the brow. She had a small indent on the forehead between her eyebrows, and her eyes sat within shallow sockets. The eyebrows themselves were thick, but not too thick, smooth lines of black that formed a pure crescent over her eyes. You might say that Nefertiti's eyebrows were on fleek. The queen's cheekbones are distinctive, rising in a smooth line beneath her eyes. Beneath these, Nefertiti may have had a slightly dimpled smile, for the sculptors consistently mark smile lines and indentations beneath the cheekbones. Her ears were prominent, although that could just be an artistic decision to make the ears visible when putting crowns or wigs or headdresses on the statues. Her neck was long, sometimes called swan-like, and she had a couple of creases just below the jawline. You know, like a normal human being. Putting them together, the various trial pieces and artistic busts show a couple of consistent features. It seems like Nefertiti had a curved nose, distinguished cheekbones, a square jawline, prominent ears, a long neck, lines under her eyes, good eyebrows, and full lips with a curve upwards at the edges, or smile lines. Are these accurate portrayals? Unfortunately, we will never know for sure. Nefertiti's mummy does not survive with any certainty. There is one body that might be hers, but it could easily be someone else. The public images, of course, present an idealised image of Nefertiti. Like any royal portrait, they scrub away imperfections and give a sense of the queen as a majestic, beautiful figure, one beyond the ordinary mortal. Reading between the lines, we can probably guess a couple of things about Nefertiti based on other women and other people from this time period. For one thing, she probably had bad teeth. Knowing ancient Egyptian dental skills, which were rudimentary by modern standards, the queen probably didn't have the greatest smile. Her teeth would have been worn down and perhaps damaged by gum disease, so that part might not have been so nice. Apart from those teeth, we can also guess that the Queen's face probably wasn't quite as symmetrical as the portraits like to show. Egyptian artists working in architecture, two dimensions, and sculpture loved their sense of symmetry, but human faces are rarely that perfect. Reading between the lines, we can probably guess that Nefertiti wasn't quite as on point as the artistic portrayals show her. Maybe one eye was slightly lower than the other, maybe her teeth were not so great, maybe her eyebrows weren't quite as perfect as they show, and she probably had more lines than the artists like to give. I'm not disparaging the beautiful works of art which these are, I'm just saying that it's hard to look at these and really get a sense that we're seeing the woman herself. With that in mind, we can at least guess that there were three people to whom Nefertiti was one of the most beautiful women in all the land. I'm not talking about Akhenaten, I'm talking about her daughters. Naturally, Nefertiti's children probably saw her as one of the most important people in the entire world. For the next few minutes, let's get to know the three girls whom Akhenaten and Nefertiti created.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. By the time Regnal Year 10 rolled around in approximately 1352, Akhenaten and Nefertiti had at least three daughters. The eldest was Merit Aten, aka Beloved of Aten, who had entered this world early in the king's reign. By now, she was about seven years old, a visible part of the royal family and an active participant in their public ceremonies. The second child was called Meket Aten, or Protected by Aten. We don't know much about this one, except that she came along somewhere around Regnal Year 6. So, in 1352, Meket Aten was approximately four or five years old. Again, old enough to participate, and soon to be an active part of Akhenaten's public ceremonies. The third and youngest daughter was named Ankh Sn Pa Aten, or She Lives for the Aten. We'll call this one Ankes for short. Ankes arrived on the scene around year seven, and when we see her in the official art, she is usually depicted as a baby, the smallest daughter of the royal couple. Often, Nefertiti cradles Ankes in one arm while the princess plays with the queen's jewellery or touches her face. Little Ankesen Pa Aten would go on to be a famous name in Egyptian royal history. Keep an eye on her. The royal couple would have more children later on, but for now, I want to keep the names to a minimum. So let's focus on the three eldest daughters, Merit, Meket, and Ankes. For convenience's sake, we'll leave off the Aten part of their names, otherwise we'll be here all day. The royal daughters show up in a variety of artistic scenes. In a couple of images, we see them enjoying some quality time with their royal parents. Two stelae, now in the Cairo Museum, show Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and the three daughters enjoying the pleasures of family life. These are beautiful images, well worth a look. On the first stela, we see the family seated beneath the rays of the Aten. The king holds one daughter on his lap and kisses her gently on the mouth. Meanwhile, Nefertiti bounces another daughter on her knee, while the third nestles in the crook of her arm reaching up to play with the queen's jewellery. It's an affectionate scene of domestic bliss, the two parents showering love on their children, while the sun disk extends its own gifts, the ankh, or life, to the family as a whole. On the second stela, we see a similar scene, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and the three eldest daughters all together. This time, though, we see Pharaoh giving his eldest child a piece of jewellery. Akhenaten sits comfortably on his chair, propping himself up with one arm, and holds out an earring of some sort to Merit Aten, who stands beside his knee and reaches up to receive the gift. Again, Nefertiti sits on the right, holding the younger daughters, Meket and Ankes, who cozy up to their mother and fidget on her lap. This scene is another of those slice-of-life images, which seem to be popular in some of Akhenaten's art. Instead of austere religious imagery or warfare, we see the royal family enjoying their comforts while the Aten shines above. The texts on these two stelae are nearly identical, and mostly just identify the main protagonists. At the top, of course, we see the names of Aten, and beside the king and queen we have their various titles. 
For the princesses, we also get their epithets, which tend to go like this. Quote, the king's daughter of his body, his beloved Merit Aten, born of the great royal wife Nefertiti, may she live forever. The king's daughter of his body, his beloved Meket Aten, born of the great royal wife Nefertiti, may she live forever. The king's daughter of his body, his beloved Ankh Esen Pa Aten, born of the great royal wife Nefertiti, may she live forever. End quote. Pretty standard stuff, which gives us a sense of the pageantry, the formality, that surrounded these young girls from an early age. We also see the princesses in much larger scenes from the tombs of Akhenaten's officials. In the sepulchre of Meri Rei, high priest of the Temple of Aten, an enormous tableau shows the royal couple and the princesses riding their chariots in an elaborate parade. Akhenaten and Nefertiti hurry along in their carts, each one pulled by horses with beautiful plumed headdresses. Ahead of the royal couple, ranks of soldiers clear the way. Behind them, a gaggle of attendants follow in their own chariots, along with the princesses. In Mary Ray's tomb, we see the three eldest daughters riding chariots behind their parents. They wear long gowns of high-quality linen, tied up just below the breasts. Their heads are shaved, except for a thick lock of hair going down one side. The princesses' carts are beautifully decorated, and they ride slightly ahead of their entourage. Befitting their status, the artist separates the princesses from the rest of the group. Merit, Meket, and Ankes are alone, while their hangers-on lag behind. Above and below the daughters, soldiers run alongside the chariots, their bodies hunched over so that the artist can fit them in the scene. The troops wear long kilts and carry police batons or cudgels in one hand. Imagine a line of men jogging alongside the chariots, clearing the way and holding back anyone who might try to get close. For onlookers, these troops would be the first barrier, separating them from the plumed horses and richly dressed women riding down the road. Apart from the artistic scenes, I also want to mention an object that is well worth looking at. This is a piece of royal paraphernalia that I didn't even know existed until I began researching the episode. The object in question is a scribe's writing kit, a wooden palette with brushes and charcoal inks. This set is in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it belonged to one of Akhenaten's daughters, the princess Meket Aten. The scribe's palette is made of ivory, and it takes the form of a long rectangle with a groove at one end to hold the brushes. Along the body, a band of hieroglyphs testify to the owner. They say, quote, King's daughter of his body, whom he loves, Meket Aten, born of the great royal wife, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti, living forever and ever. End quote. Small clumps of pigment, red, yellow, and black, nestle in the hollows beside the brushes, which are made of reeds. Put together, it's a delightful little piece, a record of a princess who is otherwise lost to history. So, the three eldest daughters, Merit Aten, Meket Aten, and Anke Sen Pa Aten, all showed up within the first decade of Pharaoh's rule. As Akhenaten established himself, promoted his god, and created his new city, Queen Nefertiti repeatedly went through the burdens of pregnancy and the agonies of childbirth. One after another, 
the palace halls echoed with the cries of babies. Of course, there was a problem. As much as Pharaoh doted on his three daughters, and the artistic scenes show a happy family, the situation was a bit more complicated. As Regnal Year 10 arrived, members of the court, and probably the royal family as well, must have wondered when, or if, Akhenaten's heir would arrive. For all her power, all her influence, Queen Nefertiti had one terrible vulnerability. She had not yet produced a son. In chapter 2, we're going to explore the questions surrounding the birth of Akhenaten's first male child. He will be a famous name one day, but for now he's just a boy. After the break, we're going to explore the parentage and arrival of the Prince Tutankhaten. See you in a moment. This episode is supported by Ra Egyptian Skincare, blending ancient Egyptian ingredients with modern cosmetology to bring you a natural beauty routine. Get 10% off any order by visiting ra-egyptian.com and entering the checkout code EGYPTPODCAST. Thank you. Tut Ankh-Aten, a famous name. From the beginning, this child is surrounded by questions. Although we are 99% sure his father was Akhenaten, the mother remains a mystery. I'll cover that in a moment. For now, all we can know is that somewhere around 1352 BCE, a royal woman became pregnant and nine months later reached her time. The lady went to the birthing room, where she placed her feet atop bricks stamped with magical protective texts. Feet apart, she squatted low while midwives held her arm, supported her back, and made a cradle at the bottom to catch the child. Then, the agonizing process began. Some time later, the halls of the palace echoed with the screams of the mother and then a baby. It was a boy, a prince of the king's body, a potential heir to the thrones of Egypt. If he survived the perilous days and months after his arrival, this baby boy might look forward to a life of privilege. The pampered son of a king and queen, a future pharaoh of Egypt, please welcome to the stage Prince Tut Ankh Aten. The child's name is quite simple. Tut Ankh means the living image, or the image that lives. From that, Tut Ankh Aten translates as the living image of Aten. A significant name, implying that Akhenaten saw his son as the continuation of the lineage that Pharaoh and Aten above had started. And Akhenaten was the father of Tutankhaten. For many years, scholars debated this question. Some suggested that Tutankhaten was a son of Amunhotep III, but this doesn't fit with the modern evidence. Others thought maybe the child was a cousin of Akhenaten, or even the child of a courtier, with no blood relation to the king. Those theories have fallen out of favour, and it seems pretty certain that Tutankhaten was the full son of Pharaoh. The prince's first recorded appearance is a name on a stone block discovered near Tuamana. The hieroglyphs on this block refer to a, quote, king's son of his body, whom he loves, Tutankhaten, end quote. The block was originally part of a larger scene featuring more of the royal family, namely the boy's father, mother, and one of his sisters as well. Just across from Tutankhaten, hieroglyphs record the princess and call her, quote, 
king's daughter of his body, whom he loves, one whom the lord of the two lands praises, Ankh Esen Pa Aten. We can guess that the scene used to show Tut and Ankh Esen facing one another, with their parents to either side. So, from an early age, the prince and princess were associated, probably because they were born just a couple of years apart. Whatever the reason, we will hear these two names, Tutankaten and Ankesenpa Aten, a lot in connection with one another. The blocks on which we first see Tutankaten and Ankesenpa Aten are unfortunately damaged, so we don't get a glimpse of the parents. Akhenaten was Tutankaten's father, that much seems clear, but who was the boy's mother? As you can guess, there are two candidates. In corner number one, we have Nefertiti, great royal wife and principal spouse of the king. In the other, we have Kia, greatly beloved wife and secondary figure in the royal family. Neither woman ever shows up with the title Mother of the King, so we can't use that to guide our efforts. Nor do we ever see Tutankaten in the company of Akhenaten or Nefertiti. Those scenes did exist once upon a time, but now they are lost, destroyed by time or vandalism. So the artwork doesn't help us either. Identifying Tutankaten's mother is tricky, based on the evidence we have. The arguments go back and forth in scholarship, and they do get quite convoluted. I'm not going to get into the weeds on this particular issue. Instead, I've chosen to follow the summary by Professor Nozomu Kawai of Waseda University in Tokyo. In his 2006 PhD thesis, Kawai went through the evidence about Tutankaten, and his later, more famous identity. Of course, he tackled the question of the mother, and in his conclusion Kawai wrote, quote, The hypothesis favouring Kia as Tutankaten's mother is not very plausible and does not go beyond speculation. I would suggest that the evidence favours Nefertiti. End quote. I happen to agree with Kawai. From the surviving pieces, nothing really pinpoints the identity of the mother. But if you bring everything together, it's a bit more likely that Tut's mother was Nefertiti. Basically, the betting odds favour the great royal wife. For now, that is all we can say. After his birth, little Tutankaten probably came into the hands of a royal wet nurse. This was a lady named Maya. Maya was the Menat Nesut, nurse of the king, and Menat Nesut Shedet Nebtawi, king's nurse who nourished the lord of the two lands. Maya had a magnificent tomb at Saqqara, constructed not long after Akhenaten's reign. So she is the best candidate for being the woman who fed and cared for Prince Tutankaten when he first arrived in the world. In her tomb, Maya commissioned a beautiful scene, showing her and the young prince seated together. Maya sits on a beautiful chair with lion paws for the feet. A dog lies beside her, looking up at the nurse. Maya wears a huge wig with a cone of beeswax atop and a lotus flower sticking out the front. It's a beautiful scene, but what makes it really stand out is the depiction of our boy, Tutankaten, sitting on Maya's lap. The prince is depicted as an adult, when he had a new name, wearing his crown when he was pharaoh, but he sits atop the nurse's lap as if he were still a child. Maya reaches up to hold her fingers before his face, as if she were caressing the boy that she had nursed from infancy. 
It's a touching scene, giving us a beautiful look at the woman who really raised Tutankaten. Scholars can go back and forth on which woman carried the boy in her womb, but if you asked the prince himself which lady he loved most, I suspect he would point to Maya. We also know a little bit about the men who helped raise and educate Prince Tutankaten. The overseer of tutors, a man named Senkedu, commissioned a splendid tomb in his hometown, and he makes reference to Prince Tutankaten repeatedly. Again, he talks about him under his adult, pharaoh name. There was also the courtier Ai, who came from the same town as Senkedu, and might have been a distant relative. Both of these men, Senkedu and Ai, held the title of God's Father, or Eat Nature, which is either a religious title or one associated with educating the prince. Maybe both. Maybe God's Father refers to the man who instructed a future king in the rituals and practices he would perform for the gods. Whatever the case, the records of these men, Ai and Senkedu, give us another glimpse at the people who surrounded Tutankaten during his early years. So, around 1352 BCE, the screaming baby boy Tutankaten emerged from his mother's womb and entered this world. He was born in Arket Aten in Middle Egypt, and he grew up within one of the great palaces which dotted the city. From an early age, Tutankaten was destined for royal power. He was cared for by his wet nurse Maya, and educated by the tutors Senkedu and Ai. Tutankaten would spend the rest of his father's reign growing up within the halls of the palace. We won't see him again for a few years, but for now, it's enough to know that he is there, in the background, being cared for by others, and slowly being instructed in the responsibilities which would one day be his. His story will continue another time. The royal family of Egypt lived a comfortable life. Queen Nefertiti, supreme royal wife, carried three daughters for the pharaoh. Merit Aten, Meket Aten, and Ankesen Pa Aten formed a small but devoted family unit. Close to their mother and father, the three daughters were a prominent part of the public image. And as the first decade of Akhenaten's rule ended, this group was closely knit. Questions remain, however, about the identity of Pharaoh's other wife, Kia. The noble lady, greatly beloved wife of the king, Kia's presence is quite ordinary for a royal family, but she does raise questions. Where did she come from? What children, if any, did she give to Akhenaten? And was she, or Nefertiti, the mother of Prince Tutankhaten? Unfortunately, Kia remains a mystery. We have not solved her today, but we will return to her in a future episode. As the first decade came to its close, Akhenaten's family was comfortably ensconced in power. Then, the great day came when a boy child, an heir, arrived at last. Whether Tutankaten was the son of Nefertiti, which is most likely, or Kia, doesn't really matter. What mattered most was that the royal inheritance was assured. Akhenaten's reign and his religious movement would continue for decades to come. Well, if only it were that simple. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The next episode will be a mini-episode, as we explore a fairy tale which may have been composed around this time. The tale describes the dissolution of a family, the conflict between relatives, and the power of royal women. It's called The Tale of Two Brothers, and it is a fascinating fable, one that might have roots in the legacy of Akhenaten. That is the next episode releasing shortly. For now, I'm your host Dominic. Thank you for joining me on this journey. See you soon! With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.